Montana. And I'm Samantha. And that was my dog. <laughs> and you're listening to Reaper Tales. <laughs> and we're going to have dogs barking in the background again. Surprise. And yes, yes, she does have dementia. <laughs> but somehow she knows exactly when Montana hits record because she starts quiet as, as could be right before second it comes on she starts barking yeah i don't know how she does like she can't she's deaf she's also deaf like she has dementia and she's no. like fully deaf so i don't know good thing she's got a sixth sense unfortunately it's not as usable as the two she's lost no it's not we've been doing some like crazy stuff with her recently i, I sent you the like snaps of it mm-hmm. of like the lick mats because that keeps her focus better but, like, when I was at the store today, I got uh, applesauce for her, like, sugar-free applesauce. I got um, I got some sweet potatoes I'm going to cook up and then mash up to put on it. I got blueberries because blueberries are apparently good for, like, their mental health and, mm-hmm. like, all that be. stuff. Yeah. So, um, I'm all the way into, like, lick mat theory for dogs recently. <laughs> Well, you'll be able to tell us how it works. I will. Anyways, what are you telling us about today? Today, I am going to tell Montana and all of you lovely listeners about Daniel Lee Seibert. But first, Montana, what are we drinking? I'm drinking down a watered down <laughs> wine. <laughs> I, pour, I poured myself a wine like an hour ago and I put ice cubes in it because it wasn't cold. And uh, I forgot about it, so it's like... And so now it's sort of cold, but there's no ice. Yeah, so it's like watery wine. So cheers, you know? <laughs> cheers. What are you drinking, Samantha? Uh, mine, cheers. I'm taking a sip. Mine mm. is um, a cherry Dr. Pepper Zero mixed with some spice drum, because that's what I had in my cabinet. Oh, and you like actually pretty tasty. Rum. Spice mm. with a lot of things I've noticed, and I've never really tried it much at all until we started making some of these crazy concoctions. It actually works pretty well. Well, when when you come back into town in a few weeks, we'll go over to the rum distillery. And they have the best nice. spice rum ever. Nice. I'll have to buy some. Um, so yeah, are you ready to hear about what you have no idea what I was going to cover? <laughs> she always puts a title. <laughs> on the recording and this time it was who knows because <laughs> I didn't give her any information whatsoever I was just like we're recording tonight right and she goes oh are we sure give me 20 minutes <laughs> because shocker <laughs> I I forgot we agreed that we were going to record on Monday instead of Tuesday I have an event tomorrow night so I cannot be available for recording so we originally no. said Monday. So we're not rushing. And for once, for once, we actually did it. For once, yes, we're doing it days before, but I can almost you're still, guarantee you're still going you, to edit it. I'm going to edit it on Thursday. <laughs> hey, there's only so much I can do. I had my stuff, I had all my stuff ready and, and together. So the rest is on you. Like, if you had not messaged me and, and been like, <laughs> are we recording tonight? I just would not have done it. Like, would not have not shot 
ADHD. I and you put it you on our calendar. I know <laughs> you would have texted me tomorrow while I'm in line to see uh, Papa Roach, and you've been like, "So are we recording tonight? No, no, we're not." <laughs> <laughs> so Guess we're doing it Wednesday. Then something happens Wednesday, Thursday. It is. <laughs> I can't keep doing the Thursday night recordings. There's so, <laughs> there's so I much. I my shit together. So. I appreciate that. I truly do. You rock. I, the stepkids were over this weekend and they had a lot of school to do. And I sat down with Sophia. I said, if you're going to be doing your school, I guess I need to be doing my work too. So I'll do my research. So thanks to, thanks to Sophia for helping me. Well, I spent like two hours doing some research. Um, yesterday yesterday was sunday yeah yesterday and uh i started one thing and then i started a different thing and then i started researching a new thing but didn't write any notes and that's probably the one i'm gonna do so that's how this next case is gonna go with me you're welcome Well, it's actually, I don't, I can't process the way you process, but it's actually kind of weird. So we did the Valentine's um, uh, tag team thing uh, last time. This one actually, the main, well, I won't say the main, but the, the crimes that, that led to to the end of the story um, actually occurred right close to Valentine's day. And then the next one that I'm doing is like after Valentine's Day. So it's like they're all really close to the same time of the year. And I did not do that on purpose. But oh, sure. Out that way. I believe you. I wish I was that organized. <laughs> I am not. There's yeah, well. I picked I picked Daniel E. Cyber because he is a one of the most well known, if not the only one, uh like serial killers from the state of Alabama. Really? State of Alabama. So he's actually not from Alabama, but anyway, are you ready to get into it? Uh, Always. All right. Let's, let's get this party started. Not, not, not a party, not a party at all. This guy's gross. I can, I can sit back and drink. You can. Um, I'm, I'll take breaks when you start firing off your opinions. Born June 17th, 1954 in Mattoon, Illinois. As a child, It's believed his life was full of tragedy. He was physically and sexually abused by his father until he was 11 years old when his mother left his father and took Daniel and his sister with her. Trigger warning, this is graphic, so fast forward about 15 to 30 seconds. According to DocumentingReality.com, as a child, Daniel Lee Seibert was sexually and physically abused by his father in every imaginable way. He'd been beaten, raped, forced to perform oral sex, made to put on girls' underwear and have sex with his father. His father would gag him, tie him up, and even urinate on him. Daniel was routinely hit with a bullwhip so severely that the scars remained until he was a grown man. What? So, yeah. um, This would be an argument for possibly made. Not just Uh. in way. So, and this was until he was 11 when his mom finally had had enough and took him and his sister away from him. Well, I mean, good on her for, like, actually doing something. But if she had had enough, she knew it was going on for a while. I mean, I guess. It's not clear what how much she knew or didn't know. But 
Well, I get she yeah, would have been these part situations of the too. Yeah. In these situations, you just never really know. It's um, just, ugh, how can you I mean, do all that of, to all a of kid? that to a child? Like, just there's something well, actually, seriously wrong with the person. How can so. you do that to anybody? But like, true, just, but I mean, a child. Oh fuck! Okay. Oh. While Daniel is starting out with a thing, while Daniel, I'm sure, hoped things would improve when he left with his mother, and maybe in some ways they did. He was he most definitely lacked any kind of stability. His mother frequently brought home different men. And according to documentingreality.com, Daniel to- told his son later that he realized that she had left his dad too late. Um, he said he ran away from home at 12 and was lo- quote, lost to the streets and drugs and prostitution End quote. That's a quote from Daniel to his son. Eventually, Daniel left home and joined the Marines under the name Daniel Marlowe in 1972. What is it about people, like, leaving to join the military? That is not going to fix anything, I assure you. Well, (laughs) we're not getting into that. My opinions on that are not (laughs) widely agreed on, so... Well, this move wouldn't really prove to be a solution either, however, um, as he received a dishonorable discharge within a year because he basically just walked away from duty and never came back. Mm. I mean, you know, when when you know you're done, just go. I mean, he 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 signed up under a false name anyway. So I don't it wasn't clear if they ever figured out that that wasn't his name. Um, But that is how he signed Signed up for the military. Uh, According to Murderpedia.org, he had two children between the years of 1973 and 1975. He had a son named Damien and a daughter. Um, I could not find her name. And if I could, it probably would have been changed if I had to guess. Oddly enough, he was an artist and considered actually really good. Um, I'll include a link in the show notes of his art. However... I'm going to give you a warning. His art is really graphic. Shouldn't be a big surprise, but in a really grotesque, weird way, like he had some talent. It was just used in the wrong direction, I would say. Well, I mean, Hitler was an artist too. Yeah. (laughs) Well, fair. (laughs) All right. So I did, a lot of my information came from a, um, a a show that's called World's Most Evil Killers and they had an episode just on him so I got a lot of information from that I got some information from other sources and obviously I'll have them all linked but the bulk of the information I got was actually from a court like the court documents because there were so many varying accounts when I was going from place to place to place. It was really frustrating. I finally found a court doc and got a lot of like straight testimony from those documents. So that came in handy, but I, this was something else. Um, it took me all weekend, <laughs> but I got it together. According to world's most evil killers, Cybert was in a relationship with a man in Las Vegas after his discharge. When one day, He stabbed his partner numerous times, over 20. He was arrested, charged, and convicted of manslaughter in 1979 and sentenced to 10 years in prison. That's it, right? No. There was evidence that he had issues accepting himself and knowing he would never be accepted, i.e. that um, 
his affinity towards men. But I, I don't know. He kind of went back and forth, so he might have been bi. I don't know. Or maybe he was just fighting his urges. Yeah. And I was the anger say, and the rage. He, he, had, he had kids. Hmm. He yeah. had kids, so obviously he had been with. But, I mean, that doesn't mean that you're straight. I've met a lot of, like, grown men who realized or actually finally came out. For me, it's like such a it's such a wash up because I'm like, I find everybody attractive. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, like, and and you know, I mean, he could have been bi, and that side of him was the side that he knew would never be accepted. So, and he was constantly fighting that part of it, but it was still there. Either way, obviously, he had issues with that. Um, but they think some believe that that's what led him to finally just like have this rage towards his partner and attack him um and he served just two years of his tenure sentence and escaped during one of his work details in december of 1981 but also all right wait i have a tenure sentence by the way for for stabbing his partner uh, one time or over 20 times and his partner died or Mm -hmm. yeah so two things there um, number one, that sentence is bullshit. Uh, 10 years is not enough. It It's overkill. He should have gotten a life sentence on an overkill thing. Number two, work release is basically just slave labor. Like, honestly, that's what it is. It's terrible. And it leaves an opportunity open for somebody to escape somebody <laughs> who stabbed somebody else multiple times. Yeah. So our justice system. <laughs> listen. listen, Montana has an opinion. Hold the phone. What? <laughs> it wait, we're talking about a uh, justice system. Montana's got oh, an no. opinion. No, no, I have I, I have one. I'm alluding to it. You guys can pick up what I'm putting down there. But the whole point is, like, whatever you're about to say after this could have been prevented. Yep. Had our 100%. justice system, you know, I don't know, gotten their heads out of their asses. To be clear, I don't feel like this was a case where this person could have ever been reformed. He yeah, was I- violent and dangerous, and he should have remained in prison, kept under lock and key. I don't even believe he should have been in, like, hot take. I don't believe he should have been in prison. I think he should have been in, like, a mental institution. Like, what he went through was traumatic. He was obviously dealing with, like, mental issues. Yeah, but the problem with sending him to a mental institution is if they, quote unquote, cure him, like they did with, uh, who was it, Kepler, then they just go off scot-free and it never goes on their record that they were had that because they were convicted, but they went to a mental institution, not prison. Yeah. And if they can fake the system like Kepler did, then they end up getting away with it and, for quite some time and then they just kind of learn tricks of the trade. Well, I think this is a larger discussion on how we need to fix our prison system. Go ahead. Write a paper real quick and and we'll... we'll To not be a for-profit business and have more mental health available and 
the prisons and system. But that is simply my opinion. Uh, no, take it or leave it. Like hot take. <laughs> Moving on. After his escape, he stops a woman in her car at gunpoint and kidnaps her. She escapes with her life by jumping out of the moving vehicle on the Golden Gate Bridge, assuming, probably rightly so, that he was going to kill her. He was captured again the next day in Oakland, and an extra year was added to his sentence for his escape. Is that an extra year on top of the 10-year sentence? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So he has nine years at this point? Because he was well, there no, for... Added... Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so, so to recap, he was convicted in 1979. So he, he had a 10-year sentence. So until 1989, plus another year. So 1990, basically. Oh, he would be released the year I was born. Cute. That being say, said, he was released on parole in 1985. So instead of the year you were born, it was the year I was born. <laughs> with the condition, this is the best part, with the condition that he returned later for his trial for the kidnapping of the woman. Okay, we're going to let you out early, but you have to promise us that you're going to be back here on X date for your new trial, Okay. Really? What the fuck? Are you serious right now? You have yes. somebody who literally ran away the second he yeah. got a chance to. You believe he's going to come back for... Get yeah. the fuck all the way off. <laughs> so, crazily, his court date was in December 1985. And he never showed. Oh, shocking. <laughs> what? <laughs> wrong so. with these people <laughs> so while he was on the run from that case um or i guess it would be a warrant maybe i don't know um around december 30th 1985 daniel met and somehow befriended and i say somehow befriended because i can't imagine this guy was really nice donald hendren donald was on his way to talladega alabama to be an artist in residence at the alabama institute for the deaf and blind daniel was just carrying uh, Daniel Seibert, the other one's Donald, because I got these mixed up several times when I was reading the, the story. Daniel was just carrying his Daniel was just carrying his case of art supplies and hitchhiking in Tucson when Daniel when Donald picked him up and invited him to join him to Alabama to work at the institute with him. I mean, he was an artist. He saw an artist. They could probably use you. At the time, Seibert declined, stating he was going back home to Illinois, and the two separated at Jackson, Mississippi. Not long after, however, Donald contacted Seibert, and I, what didn't say how, but this is straight from the court doc, so he did. I don't. I guess he gave him his parents' number or something because that's who he said he was visiting in Illinois was his parents. So Donald called Seibert and convinced him to join him. And on July 20th, 1986, Seibert moved in with him. Seibert started out helping Donald design stage sets at the school. And by February of 1986, Daniel was teaching art at the Alabama Institute for the Deaf and Blind in Talladega under the name Daniel Spence. You might be wondering why they allowed him to teach, especially since he's just straight off the road. Well, the rumor is that he showed up, he just showed up with Donald, and he offered to teach the class for free in hopes to be hired as a permanent faculty member. Donald later reported that he moved out shortly after Cyber arrived on February 16th, because he moved out on February 16th, so not even a month after Cyber moved in, 
Donald moved out of his own apartment on February 16th because Seibert had started dating Sherry Weathers and the relationship was specifically prohibited by the Institute's rules because Sherry was a student. Mm. And Donald didn't want to have anything to do with that. So he just noped out. Probably a good call. I'm going to nope right out this door. <laughs> nope. And I'm, I'm put here. Nope. So I put, I put a note here. So, okay. Dude invites this guy to work at the Institute with him. And within a month of him moving in, dude moves out of his own apartment because the guy is causing problems. No good deed goes unpunished. <laughs> gave him a job, gave him a place to stay. I'm just going to go ahead and leave and let you have it. All right. I guess it yeah. worked out better for him anyway. The last time Donald saw Seibert was February 19th when he had arranged to provide Seibert a ride around 8 a.m. the next morning for a faculty meeting. Obviously, when he showed up at the arranged meeting place, Seibert never showed. We're about to find out why. On February 19th, around 8 p.m., Seibert was seen with Sherry and her neighbor Linda buying beer at a convenience store in Talladega, and the three left the store together. Another neighbor named Bettis Porter returned home to a note from Sherry around 9.30 p.m. asking him to come over to her apartment to play cards with the three of them. When Porter arrived around 10.30 p.m., Linda and Sherry were there alone. They explained that Cybert had left in Linda's car, this will come into play later, to go get beer, and that they could play cards once he got back. Porter stayed around until about 11.30, or he said somewhere between 11.30 and midnight, but Cybert had still not returned at that point. And so he just went back to his apartment, probably to go to sleep because it's midnight. At some point, yeah, another neighbor, Catherine, <laughs> uh, while this has been fun, just sitting around talking, um, I came to play cards and it's been two hours. I'm going to go to bed. <laughs> At some point, another neighbor, Catherine Elaine Shelbourne who lived in the adjoining apartment, reported hearing a man say, come to me, you can join your mother. And later the same man said, come on and you'll be with your mother and your brother. Through the, She heard that through the adjoining, adjoining wall. Yet another neighbor named Billy Kyle reported seeing Sherry and Cybert fighting in her apartment the night of February 19th. He didn't know the exact time, only that it was sometime after he arrived home at 8 p.m. Uh, I don't like so that. Is, this, uh, yeah, this this is going to get bad. What? This this going to get bad. Uh, this, it, it sounds like um um what was it? Uh, Dahmer when the neighbor. Mm -hmm. It sounds like yeah. I don't I don't like this. <laughs> they don't. <laughs> It won't take me long to go over what happens next, but it is going to be a little rough. Okay. So um, trigger warning. Um, this one is a little rough and yeah, you can flip your little guy to an unhappy face. That's fair. Um, it's going to be rough. So, you know, um, I, I would just have to do a blanket trigger warning for this whole thing. So it is like the next minute or two tops. Um, according to court records, by Sunday, February 23rd, 1986, Billy had not seen Sherry or her children around the apartments, and Billy was her neighbor. Remembering the fight he had seen between Sherry and the appellate, Cyber, in her apartment on Wednesday night, Billy tried to check on Sherry but could summon no one to the door of her apartment, which was apartment 30. 
By this time, Billy was extremely concerned about the welfare of Sherry and her children, so he entered her apartment through an unsecure window. But when he saw a part of Sherry's body protruding out from under a sheet, he became scared and left. Billy Kyle was later cleared by the police of any involvement in the murders. The next morning, however, Billy told Wanda Hunley, an institute social worker, that he was concerned about Sherry and asked her to check on Sherry and her sons. After making several phone calls, she learned that no one had seen Sherry or her children in several days. She also learned that there was an odor emanating from the apartment. Nope. 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 Ms. Hunley, accompanied by several other individuals, then went to the Sunrise Apartments and obtained a pass key for the apartment. Upon entering the apartment, Ms. Hunley and the others found the bodies of Sherry, Chad, and Joey Weathers. Autopsies of the bodies of the three people disclosed that Sherry Weathers died as the result of strangulation and that Chad and Joey died as the result of ligature strangulation. And that's straight from the court docs. Later, Seibert would confess to the crime, saying... He went to Sherry Weathers' apartment on the evening of February 19, 1986, and let himself in with a key, which he had been given. Sherry and Linda Jarman were there. Eventually, Linda left. As he and Sherry were walking toward her bedroom, he strangled her with a piece of cloth that he had on his person. Then he woke up each of the boys individually and strangled them. them. He left town in a car, which he had abandoned in Kentucky after two flat tires. After spending the couple of days, a couple of days at a campsite he had set up near the car, he headed north, then went east in an attempt to get as far away from Alabama as he could. Hey, uh, Samantha, um, how often do you just carry around like loose cloth? Yeah, that I can use to do something like that. Never. Yeah, the only time I can think about um, having something like that is when I wear a scarf in the winter. Um, but. Just random clothes. He went over there knowing what he was going to do. Oh, yeah. Oh, for sure. And not just her. Her two boys, too. Yeah. Like, oh, God. Oh, and my he God. woke them up. So that's why that neighbor heard what he, she heard. Oh, my God. Oh, Apparently, God. after doing all of this, he went to another woman's apartment who was... Uh, close by and told her he had had a fight with Sherry and asked to stay with her for the night. When Linda Jarman left him to the couch to go to the bed, so this is Linda, Sherry's friend, he went to the bedroom and strangled her as well, stealing her VCR and her car. Remember, she had given him permission for to borrow the car so he knew she had one and probably knew where the keys were and everything. So he just stole her VCR. For for those of you that are young, VCR was, was this uh, little machine that you could use to watch movies there was nothing there little about it samantha it was, <laughs> was huge. <laughs> maybe he stole it for a weapon i don't know <laughs> oh my god uh, fortunately she was found naked and strangled with her tv on and her car was missing so he left the tv on i guess to give the appearance that she was just there Fingerprint, fingerprints linked cybert to her stolen car a 1973 buick later found in um, Elizabethtown, Kentucky, on March 3rd, 1986. Please tell me that he talks about why he does this. No. Oh, no. Because it just, it makes no, no sense this to me. Guy, this guy is not one of those that's that's apologetic whatsoever. He's like the BTK. Like, you, 
when he gave his confessions, he was basically bragging about him. Well, yeah, but BTK. There was, there was no, I wanted, like, it was nothing. It was just, it, the fancy struck him. He never gave a motive for any of it. I mean, BTK was a fucking pervert and a weirdo and just wanted to have his name out there. That was obvious. For sure. He was only, I think he like, just, I think this guy just, like to kill for the sake of killing. I think that's all it was. He probably had something against women. I had to get, if I had to guess. Yeah. Probably held a little bit of resentment towards his mom for letting stuff happen for so long when he was a kid. Well, he probably didn't fully trust men either because of his dad. Well, I'm sure he didn't. Oh my God. So, Seibert had not returned to work since February 20th when the police interviewed Spence about the crime after they found out that he had been interested in Cherry, a check of his fingerprints revealed that he was actually Daniel Seibert and the fingerprints were the fingerprints that they found on the car. Seibert had a prior conviction of manslaughter in 1979, which I had already mentioned, and was currently wanted on assault charges in San Francisco, California. That was the case that he noped out of and just decided not to attend since they gave him the option, apparently. As the police are knocking on Seibert's apartment door, a man walks up asking what they want. When they ask about Seibert, the man informs them that he's not home, but his daughter's been missing for two days. The police told him to go to the police 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 station and file a report. They soon realized, however, that the man's daughter, Linda Odom, was also tied to Seibert. Her decomposed remains were found more than a month after she was reported missing on March 30th, 1986. What the fuck? Anybody what? that is remotely related to this guy or in what's, his vicinity. But what set him off? Like, There's he doesn't. never any information given about that. He never clarifies anything. Oh so God. according to court documents that I could find, on February 19th, 1986, the appellate ate lunch at the apartment of a neighbor, Stephen Laney, with Laney and Laney's girlfriend, Linda Odom. That's the one I just mentioned. Thereafter, the appellate asked Laney for a ride to the apartment of his girlfriend, Sherry Weathers. After Laney dropped him off, the appellate spent some time at his girlfriend's apartment, where the victim, Linda Jarman, was apparently also present. Linda Jarman, who was also deaf, by the way, I didn't mention this, they were both deaf because they were students at the Institute for the Deaf and Blind. I forgot to mention that. Because they were students there, so they were both deaf. Linda Jarman, who was also deaf, was a teacher at the E.H. Gentry School and knew the appellate through her work there because she lived next door to his girlfriend, Sherry Weathers. Linda Jarman owned a yellow or gold 1973 Buick automobile, which the appellate borrowed with her permission. He then drove back to his apartment where Stephen Laney observed him carrying large green trash bags downstairs. The appellate told Laney that he had borrowed his girlfriend's automobile and was returning some of her stuff because they had had a fight. The appellate returned to Sherry Weathers' apartment where he spent some time. Upon leaving that apartment, he walked next door to Linda Jarman's apartment. He spent an hour or two there drinking wine with her. They then went into the bedroom, partially clothed, and lay down upon the bed where he murdered her by strangling her. He then took her stereo, her car, and fled to to Talladega. And fled Talladega, my bad. What a... Oh, I was about to say, what a place to flee to. Well, that's where they are. It's Talladega. Yeah. That would be the last place I went to. No, he's, he went, he went north because of 
it was found in Kentucky. But um, so yeah. yeah, all right. So that's how he was tied to the other one because it, his neighbors, uh, well, uh, neighbor slash sort of friend. I think he can sort of considered him a friend, but he um, he was the person. His testimony was important because it tied him to the car as well as her other belongings. Right. He was also believed to be involved with the death of Cheryl Evans, whose body was found dumped on the side of the road in the same county not far away around February 20th, right around the same time as the others had been murdered. But there wasn't enough evidence to move forward with the formal charge, so they weren't actually able to tie her in with the rest of the murders. How'd she die? Uh, I believe she was strangled and her body was dumped on the side of the road. She was um, a sex worker. Well. Um, and it was uh, around, it was, her body was found around February 20th. All signs point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this all happened within like two days, three days. Yeah. It's it's more like a fr- he he's less it's a frenzy. Like a, yeah, it's less like a serial killer and more of like a um a frenzy killing. Well, oh, man. What are the definitions of um a, a serial killer is two or more with a cooling yeah, off typically, period. Typically, yeah. And technically he has one. Technically, well, I mean all of these finished okay all right all right i'm sorry i'm just like (laughs) he's just like on a fucking rampage yeah and normally like you get one out you wait a little bit do another one he's just like wham bam 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 Mm -hmm. yeah i wish i could tell you like the reasoning behind but i think he intentionally withheld that i mean this guy was just (sighs) something else um over the next six months Seibert was on the run, and reports of him surfaced in Ohio, New Jersey, Nevada, Southern California, and Montreal, Canada. He found his next victim, Beatrice McDougall, when he was in Atlantic City, New Jersey, in 1986. She was a tour guide and, as such, had some cash on her. That's believed to be why he killed her. In any case, once he had killed her and taken her money, he disappeared. At some point after, he was arrested and ordered to serve 61 days for assaulting a woman. All Now, he was arrested and ordered to serve 61 days for assaulting a woman. They hadn't tied him to her, but they had him. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. 60 days for assaulting mm-hmm. somebody? Assaulting so basically, she got free. She managed to not get killed. And so he just gets 60 days. It doesn't matter. To me, 60 days for assaulting somebody is like spinning in the victim's face. That is, there should be higher he penalties. He had to serve 60 before. days after being, after being found guilty of manslaughter and serving five years and having a warrant for his arrest for another assault and he still just gets 61 days. How did that happen? Yeah, he's a, a repeat offender. Wait, how does the hang on? This brings into this brings up a great point. So this makes me like question like when did the three strikes law come into effect? Which I mean, 
is an innately like racist law to begin with, but whatever. Uh, so we looked it up. It was 1993. Um, after this. So after this. This. Well. <laughs> anyway, go on. <laughs> So this happened all while the authorities in Alabama were searching for him. To avoid identification, get ready, he used the social security card of one of the boys he had murdered. He actually used their ID several times while he was on the run. One of his girlfriend's kids? Yeah, the, the ones that he killed, yeah. Because it's a social security card, so they don't know how old he is. Oh, yeah, that's true. They didn't start, like, tracking, like identities and they just showed him the social security card and they're like okay cool you can't steal one of those what the fuck (laughs) oh my god oh my god what oh my god the 80s were so fucked up oh my god that was a time oh i need to lay down so, the break in the case happened when a woman called the investigators and told them that Seibert had reached out to her on September 3rd. Turns out, she was an old friend from Vegas. He had told her the time where he was located, so they knew the time zone was Eastern and that it was raining when he called because he mentioned it. So, they called. So, this is based on, let me clarify, this is based on the show I watched. There's also a different version. I think it's a mixture of the two, honestly, but... So they called the National Weather Service and told them where he had called and that it was raining. So like Eastern, it was raining at this time. And the National Weather Service responded, letting them know that it was in Tennessee. Quickly, they were able to locate him in Hurricane Mills, Tennessee. So that was one version. The other version, which makes more sense, but I wonder if it was a combination of the two, because that's a really weird thing for them to just make up. And the show, usually a lot of their stuff's on point. So that must have been reported by somebody. But the other version was that after the friend reported him, they waited for him to make another call to that same person. And when he did, they traced the phone call to a payphone outside of a restaurant that he had worked at. But the TV show didn't mention that he ever called that person again. So I'm not sure which story is accurate. Either way, they were able to tie it to basically the city that he was in and he was apparently working at this restaurant. Um, and so when they got to the restaurant, uh, they may have just like been trying to make it more like sensational. Maybe. Imagine. So that. making it seem like they tied. Yeah. Like a storm to him. Like, I, had, I don't know, catching a murder during hurricane Katrina. I heard a lot of wind and shit. Well, they're probably in this area. Like, I don't know. That's that's my thought on it. Eh, probably. It was an interesting way of... I've never heard anything like that, and that's some kind of serious detective work considering the last, two ca- the last case that we talked about last <laughs> week that you had. Where none was. Sorry, God. Um, anyway... Uh, apparently he was identified as someone that was working in that restaurant when they got there. Um, so they just kind of staked out the place until he made an appearance and they arrested him. After he, which by the way, how stupid do you have to be to use a payphone right outside the restaurant you work to call somebody? Yeah. You you gotta like drive a city over or something like that and you use the payphone there and then you go back to work. 
Well, which, this was probably a time where they were like, pay phones, those are untraceable. <laughs> but I'm also thinking about them. Maybe I'm thinking about somebody who has more of a disposable income who could take a bus over another city. True, I don't, yeah, I don't think he had. I mean, that's kind of how he made his money, essentially. He robbed people and killed them. Yeah. So he probably didn't have the money to do it. Oh, no. I just... Had he never seen, like, I don't know, Goodfellas or Casino? When did or... those movies come out? <laughs> Hi, don't ask me that. All right, we're going to pause. All right, so we looked it up. Uh, Goodfellas was 1990 and Casino was 1995. Look, I always thought they were done. He hadn't seen those. No, I know. I was just like, but he had to have seen something that had something like that. Maybe not. I don't know. I just like. This is why that was in those movies, because he was the one that did it. It made people realize that you can't do that. Maybe, but like, uh, I don't know. Uh, now I have to go and watch Casino. Um, after we're done with this, so okay. let's wrap it up. Yes, let's go. After he was arrested, he confessed to killing at least 12 people by strangulation, stating the motive was sex and robbery. And that's basically all you get from him. While the police believe that he was guilty of more homicides, specifically some unsolved murder murders in Arizona, California, Nevada, and Florida, they didn't have sufficient evidence to formally charge him and he wouldn't confess to any of them. He did eventually confess to the murders of 28-year-old Gidget Castro and 23-year-old Nasa McElrath in Los Angeles, both of which had previously been believed to be murdered by the Southside Slayer. And they were found murdered by can strangulation we, in 1985. Can we just talk about the fact that they were named Gidget and Nasa? And those are some of the coolest names I've ever heard in love, my entire life. Nasa. That's really pretty. Yeah. I, was, yeah. I, had to, I had to look at that a couple times to make sure I spelled it right. But yeah, it's they're pretty names. It's like, I really like the Nasa. Yeah. Oh, man. Sorry, I was just like, once you said it, I was like, oh my god, like, oh my god, I love those names so much. Um, uh, they they were also sex workers, so they were just kind of lumped into this group of people that yeah were believed to have been murdered by the Southside Slayer, but obviously they didn't make much progress with the uh, case. Based on the information he shared, it was clear to the police that he was really responsible for the murders because he had given information that wasn't released into the public, so they knew it really was him. He had been residing in the area at the time, and he explained his motive was to take their money because they were sex workers, so he knew that they would have some, and he figured they were easy targets. Of course. And if you notice the states where the murders that they wanted to tie him to occurred. It was like on his path from California to Alabama for the most part. Yeah. All around that time, but they, they couldn't tie it to him. Also that time period was like, Oh my God. Like the seventies and eighties were just, and nineties were just like hotbeds for Mm -hmm. serial killers too so while i want to say he probably did do some of those he probably didn't do all of them there was probably another killer out there 
I mean, how like, many times did they cross? Did uh, they um, different serial killers kind of cross paths almost because they were in the same area and they just didn't realize it at the time? And that, yeah, I think exactly. that did mess up a lot of investigations at the time too, because they thought they were looking for the same person for some of these, but it actually was different people just in the same area, which is really. And sad. I mean, if we're we're talking about like strangling, and we're talking about like that western area what the hillside strangler wasn't that around mm -hmm. that time too uh in that area i think so the hillside yeah. strangler was california i think yeah so, so yeah i mean that's easy overlap um so there's and that's why they you know they just didn't have enough to definitively pin it on him and he wouldn't confess so that's all they had in any case, Seibart was found guilty of all of the five murders of Sherry Weathers, Chad Weathers, Joseph Weathers, Linda Jarman, and Linda Odom. And he was sentenced to death. Uh, he was found guilty of those five murders in the state of Alabama and was sentenced to death twice by the state of Alabama. One death sentence was for the murder of Linda Jarman. The other was for Sherry Weathers and her sons. They were all tried together. They were all considered they as one charge of capital murder. Are they going to kill him, resuscitate him, and then kill him again? <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's not that's not how it works. Um, just wait till I get to the end. Again, want to take a moment to remind you of the way that the Alabama justice system works. To get the death sentence, he must have been found guilty of capital murder or murder one in some states. Um, and it has to be proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that there was forethought and intent or it was done in the process of a robbery. So they could prove that they could prove with Linda Jarman that it was in the process of a robbery because of the stolen car and the stolen VCR slash radio. They could prove, I, th I think with Sherry, it was intent because he went over there and killed her mm -hmm. and her children with Linda Odom. They couldn't prove either one of those. So, cause he didn't steal anything from the house. So they went specifically for capital murder for Sherry and Linda Jarman. Seibert's first trial was held in Talladega County, and he was convicted on March 19th, 1987 of capital murder of, of the capital murder of Linda Jarman. And the jury recommended a death sentence the following day on April 17th, 1987, the court sentenced him to death for the Weathers trial murder trial. Seibert was granted a change of venue and because it would have been in the same County as the last one. For the Weathers murder trial, Seibert was granted a change of venue and the trial was held in Lee County. Seibert was convicted of capital murder of the Weathers family on June 18, 1987, and the jury recommended a sentence of death the same day. On August 19, 1987, the court again followed the jury's recommendation and sentenced him to death. His execution date was set for October 25, 2007 for the murders of, the we of Weathers and her children. Appeals were filed, of course, but in Seibert's case, they were denied. One specific appeal was denied because they were filed too late. According to the rule, the appeals must have been filed within two years of the judgment. In this case, the judgment for the Talladega County case was reached on May 22, 1990, but the petition was filed August 24, 1992, so just over two years. Wow, for wow. Lee County. For the Lee County case, the judgment was filed on January 30th, 1990, but the petition was filed on or about June 25th, 1992. So again, just over two years. And there's a two-year statute of limitations in the state of Alabama. 
The judgment referred to here is a certificate of judgment issued by the Alabama Court of Criminal Appeals. So that's like the automatic appeals that are issued. They were shot down by the Alabama Court of Criminal Appeals on that day. So the petitions had to be filed two two years from that date. Basically from the date that the initial appeals were denied. One interesting part of an appeal that I found was that he should not have gotten, so this was one of the things that they claimed, he should not have gotten a capital murder charge for Linda Jarman's murder because it didn't happen during the course of a robbery because Linda had given him permission to use her car before he killed her. Huh? But, to borrow it, not to take it after killing her. Are you seriously trying to tell me because she gave you permission before you killed her that it wasn't theft? Hey, uh, just quick question. Did they also sell her car at an auction when they found it? Just <laughs> That was not covered. You know, um, blanket question here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just what is going on over the, like, he... It's what a verb, and I understand a verbal agreement is still an agreement. But once However, that person dead, after you killed them, the agreement you had with them is kind of null and void at that point. And like you can think. literally just the other party's dead, anyways. You can literally just sit there and be like, "Yeah, she told me I could borrow it." Well, and that was the thing. I mean, it I was, it was obviously denied. It was obviously denied because he couldn't prove that he actually got permission. So they're like, if you can't prove that you actually got permission, then that's not going to work. He also couldn't, he, uh, nor did he present sufficient evidence to discredit the witness, the one I mentioned earlier, that saw him that night loading the victim's car with trash bags, quote, filled with some of the victim's stuff. So... Yeah, no, that's not going to work. Sorry. Uh, nice try. So while he was in prison, he often created art depicting women in bondage and sold his artwork on Murderbilia websites. Seibert said later that he learned how to draw while hiding from his father as a child. He also had more than one female pen pal. And just like so many other serial killers, these pen pals were devoted to him and would post updates about him and the death penalty laws on the internet for him. No, just just fucking no. Listen, whoever's out there listening to this podcast, and I know there's a couple of you, but if you are like, if you're like us and you listen to true crime um, and you're fascinated with it, and I wouldn't say like we're fascinated with it because we're like obsessed with serial killers. We're not. I'm obsessed with it because I am constantly afraid somebody is going to murder me. That's it. Fun times. Do not. Do not. My Christ. I don't know why I have to say this. Do not buy serial killer artwork. Do not buy murder. Abilia. Murder Abilia. Do not buy it. Like, that's sick. That's disgusting. Don't do it. I know a lot of people do. Just don't do it. Like, just don't do it. My, my, oh my goodness. I saw, there was, so I found a website that had a letter that he had written a pen pal. 
and it was typed. The first two or three letters were typed. And then like the last page was handwritten and it was for sale at some point, the letter for like 50 something dollars or something, 500. I don't remember. Anyway, it, obviously there's only one, so it was sold, but I read some of that letter and I just had to stop because it was just disgusting. Like he was bragging and he's like, you, he says something like, uh, you obviously appreciate it like I do. So I feel the need to expound on my, and it's like, Oh God, just shut up. Just stop. Just stop. Gross. And I just, that I was done. I was done. So don't. don't. That is so nasty. Like, Oh, Oh, don't encourage this. Don't don't encourage this behavior. Don't buy murder. Abelia. Like, it's just, Oh my God. I, I, I can't. Hmm. At the time of his execution mm. date, Seibert was receiving treatment for pancreatic cancer. Seibert had requested the stay, saying that there was a potential risk of interaction between the drugs he was taking for his cancer and the drugs used for the lethal injection. He even had a physician report that it was possible that the lethal injection drugs could cause him to vomit, vomit during the procedure. He also challenged the execution by lethal injection as being cruel and unusual punishment in general, even if the possible interaction wasn't considered. Groups against the death penalty urged the governor to spare Seibert due to his terminal cancer diagnosis, as he was he was dying possibly within a few months anyway. On October 22, mm-hmm. 2007, Gover- Governor Bob Riley stated that he had no plan to stay the execution, saying, I would, in essence, be commuting his sentence to life in prison because he would be dying. So he would have died in prison. So he's not wrong. And that's not the sentence he was given by the jury. His crimes were monstrous, brutal, and ghastly. However, just hours before his execution, the governor did, in fact, grant the stay of execution. Per the appellate doc. Why? Daniel L. Seibert appeals the district court's denial of... He appeals the district court's denial of his emergency motion for preliminary injunction to stay execution and moves this court for a stay of execution. We reverse and grant the motion to stay. Seibert filed a 1983 suit in the Middle District of Alabama challenging the constitutionality of Alabama's lethal... It says 1983 suit. That doesn't make sense. It must be 93. I think they wrote that wrong. Challenging the constitutionality, or maybe 2003? That year doesn't look right. The district judge dismissed Seibert's general challenge to Alabama's lethal injection protocol, finding that it was untimely. However, in regard to Seibert's personal claims based on his recently diagnosed terminal illness, the district court denied the motion to dismiss. Seibert's initial complaint and his amended complaint challenged the constitutionality of the lethal injection protocol that Alabama has had in place since 2002, the same protocol used in every other state that administers the death penalty. Slight pause here. We already had that conversation in a previous case about why this was a problem and why it was being fought around this time. Alabama has announced that the state has somewhat modified its procedure and Cybert will be the first to be executed in accordance with these minor changes. Apparently, the change to the lethal injection protocol has to do with the addition of a check of the condemned inmate for consciousness after injection of the anesthesia before the injection of the other chemicals used in the execution. So basically they're making sure he's out before they actually kill him, I guess. I'm sorry. He was terminally ill? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he had pancreatic cancer. He had months to live. Oh, well, I would have just let him suffer. 
Well, sorry. Well, I mean, he did get the stay. That's what we're talking. That's what this part is. Yeah. This I mean, I like, in my opinion, that would have been a worse death anyways. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm not like, I mean, I'm totally a petty bitch. So Just I was going to say, I'm not a petty bitch. <laughs> yes, you are. But I am. Don't you try to but, lie right now. <laughs> I mean, like, my whole thing is like, I don't... <sighs> I'm just going to openly say it. I don't believe in the death penalty. I've said it before. I'm going to say it now. It doesn't do anything. Like it just wastes so much more money on appeals and things like that. Like you have appeals on life sentence, but it's not as much. There's not as much money that's going into the appeals process when there's a death penalty case on the table. And like most of the time, like death penalties don't get carried out quickly. So you're just like, there's so much more money that's being poured. And also I don't believe in taking a life for a life. So it doesn't like, I can't speak for the victim's families, but for me having somebody, if somebody had killed you, Samantha, I would not want them to be sentenced to death. That's for me, that would be an easy way out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. So it just, Morally, I just don't believe in the death penalty, never going to believe in it, but having him die from pancreatic cancer, one of the worst cancers that are out there, like, fuck yeah, let that dude suffer. (laughs) Just, ah. I mean, basically, all you're doing is you're taking the quote-unquote power out of your hands by not taking the life yourself. You're letting his body do it to him. But is that really any better or worse? Does it really matter? The point is he's going to die. So what difference does it really make? One is going to be excruciatingly painful for months on end. The other one's going to be quick. And at the end of the day, we're all going to die. (laughs) Yeah, we're all going to die. Like there's no getting out. None of us are getting out of this bitch alive. Let's be real. But... At the end of the day, what is going to be, what is going to be more beneficial, not beneficial, what is going to be more like suffering? Somebody who dies on drugs, who has no idea, like who's sedated, who doesn't know what's going to happen to the, like they know what's happening, but it's like a very peaceful thing. Or is it like a long life of suffering in prison and like, I'm I have my own thing with like the prison system and all that shit. But the whole point being is that like, for me, it doesn't seem beneficial to take somebody else's life. No. Because they took other people's lives. And that's just me. I just don't believe in the death penalty. Yeah. I'm I'm not going to go over my thoughts about that again. Cause we already talked about it, but it doesn't, it doesn't make it, it bare minimum monetarily. It doesn't make sense. It costs, no state much more so i'm gonna leave it at it that it truly does the supreme court is presently considering the constitutionality of the challenged lethal injection protocol in another case that was being issued october 3rd 2007 accordingly we reverse the district court's denial of his emergency motion for a preliminary injunction and we stay his execution pending the supreme court's resolution of that case after which the district court shall reconsider its decision in light of any guidance provided in the so- in the Supreme Court's disposition of that case. That being said, that was a case in the Supreme Court that was currently being like seen and reviewed or whatever. He was more than likely going to die. 
before that case came to resolution and everybody knew it. Oh, for sure. And it had a couple footnotes. One was, Cybert generally alleged that the state's improper use of anesthesia as a precursor to execution unnecessarily risks infliction of severe pain and suffering. After receiving a recent diagnosis that he was suffering from pancreatic cancer and hepatitis C, that's not a surprise. However, Cybert filed an amendment, um, an amended complaint that encompassed the allegations of his first complaint and added claims that painful complications were likely to arise from the treatment or non-treatment of his recently diagnosed illnesses. Dude, if you are worried about pain and suffering during the lethal injection process, it's going to be for like two minutes, three minutes, maybe 10. Well, some of them have, I mean, some botched some of them have been botched. <laughs> and some yeah. of them are in the state of Alabama. We already talked about that. Uh, a lot of them are in the state of Alabama, uh, but. Oh, well. As the district court noted, for a variety of reasons unclear to this court, the state of Alabama keeps the specifics of its lethal injection protocol secret. The district court judge ordered that the state disclose to the court the details of the lethal injection protocol to be followed in cyber execution. In compliance with that order, the protocol has been filed with the court under a seal. So for some reason, they have a secret concoction. I can guess a couple of reasons, but we won't go into that because I already covered it in a previous case. It's a secret. What are they putting fucking ginger into it? What is secret about it? It's a secret these recipe. Are, we don't share recipes. These are... They're regulated drugs. Yeah, remember I talked about it, the, t- the whole Tennessee thing. There's a reason why they're keeping I, it secret. Just, secret. Oh my God. And so it's under investigation now. I just can't with, oh my God, just stop. Okay, so just, on a separate note, there was a pornography case in December 2007 that Cybert was investigated in relation to. While no what? charges were filed, a personal correspondent of Daniels was charged for multiple sex crimes due to the investigation's <laughs> findings. What? <laughs> <laughs> no, you can't like left turn me there. Like this dude's a serial killer, and you're like in other news. Also, <laughs> there was why it was in all of the places that I read it. Like that's all the information I could get. I'm I'm assuming that the his this pen pal that he had. Um, that he was corresponding with was must have been sending him something and then it came back that oh wait these are sex crimes that's a problem and so I was like oh I don't know he just sent it to me I didn't know it wasn't okay so the other guy got charged or other person and didn't say it was whether it was a male or a female or whatever so yeah um, he was involved, but he didn't get any charges filed against him. Not like it would have mattered. He already had two death sentences and he was dying from cancer. So I don't think it was going to make a difference. I mean, they were going to doubly kill him. So <laughs> Yeah. On Tuesday, April 22nd, 2008, Cybert died from complications from cancer. He was pronounced dead at 1.35 PM at Hallman Correctional Facility near Altmore or Atmore. Um, that's actually the one that I mentioned before. I think that is the correctional facility that most death row inmates in Alabama are housed. It seems like, cause it gets mentioned a lot. Oh no. He had been at the facility awaiting his execution for over 21 years. His death came less than a week after the U S Supreme court approved the most widely used method for lethal injection, prompting States to move forward with executions after halting them for nearly seven months. Mm-hmm. so one way or another but basically what everybody figured was going to happen was he died before it went through 
I'll end the case on this quote from documentingreality.com because I couldn't say it better myself. After his death, Alabama Attorney General Troy, Troy King, which is weird because I, I actually remember some of these names now on, on this case. I'm used to doing really old cases and I don't remember, don't know any of the officials in it. Um, Alabama Attorney General, Attorney General Troy King said that his death should put an end to, to years of legal shenanigans that have gone on. Esther Brown, executive secretary of Project Hope to abolish the death, the death penalty, stated that he certainly hoped to die from the cancer before he was executed, to which King said, it's a shame that he got what he wanted, but the people who he brutally executed had no say in the, in the matter at all, and that's the injustice of it all. Which is true. Fair. Oh, fair. So he died. Well... Good riddance. Hopefully, hopefully painfully. Um, I'm sure it was. Pancreatic cancer um, sounds like a terrible Bitch. thing to die from. Uh, more justice in that he died from that than... Mm-hmm. I think so. Lethal, inje- lethal injection. Uh, oh, my God. Good job. I told you it was a rough case, but this one's been on my list for a while. Hmm. So now wow. I can get my head out of that space. Well, um, what again, promise. good job. I'm going to take a picture of us. Well, I think you might be better at taking a picture because my screen's not that great at us recording. That'll be our, uh, since we don't have a drink thing to upload, you can Do take it. a picture. <laughs> you can get your hand on his head. Uh, yeah, so good job. I agree with the angry guy. I fucking hate that. Um, I mean, I'm. <sighs> this one was a tough one. Like when I found out about the abuse he had as a kid, like I'm not saying it justifies it by any stretch of the means, but no, just that's one of the things about, I think these, these type of cases that is the reason why it interests me at all is because it's that whole what is it nature versus nurture like are they created or are they born and i think most of the time it is a mix of the two but i feel like even a normal child like a a completely healthy no issues whatsoever born child that would never go that direction in that situation very likely could when all you know is violence until you're a teenager i mean that it's not hard it's not a stretch of the imagination to think that you would have problems as an adult. It's not, it's not hard and it's, it's not a stretch of the imagination to do something like that. But speaking from my own childhood trauma, I didn't end up as a serial killer. Well, obviously everybody has choice. So you have a choice. You have like, you have a way out of that and you just can't. Oh my God. I just, I just can't with what he went through was so traumatic and he should have gotten help for it. And like, I'm not putting the onus on him to get help for himself as a child. That should have been on like his mother to get help for him. But as an adult, he should have gotten help. He obviously had something mental. Anyone who does anything like that has something mentally wrong with them and i'm coming from somebody who has a lot of mental issues <laughs> saying there 
same. They should have gotten like some kind of mental assistance. And I understand like it was a different time. It was this, it was the seventies, you know, mental health wasn't what it is today. Yeah. And see, look what happened. (laughs) You guys are the most serial killers serial killers at the same time. It was just like, I can't, I can't get behind somebody like having a traumatic, like childhood and things like that and going on to traumatize other people. Like, I don't know, you 100%. Would hope something like that would give them empathy because well, so it gave me too much empathy. The idea is like you can take it different ways, right? So trauma that we we experience as children, we can it can make us hard and and mean and angry, or it can do the complete opposite, and we're overly empathetic and caring about those around us. And we don't want anybody else to go through that. So we're protective of other people. We can either go out of our way to do something else with our lives and not be that type of person. Or we can go the exact same path and do the exact same thing to other people because it was done to us. Like there's paths that you can choose it. But the thing is you are choosing it. And I, I agree with that completely, but if you weren't in that traumatic situation, you would not have that path quite as clearly drawn for you to go down that other track, other path. Now it has happened. There's plenty of serial killers that had a completely normal upbringing and had no trauma whatsoever that can be found when they were children and they still did it. But yeah. So, I mean, again, it's still, it's, it's still your choice, but I just feel like, there's a difference between it being a well-worn path that's put in front of you and one that you really have to veer to get to. Yeah, fair enough. I I can see that. I just, I find it, being in the situation that I'm in, I find it hard to go down that path. Okay. Knowing how I, how I felt as like a child in situations and thinking like, how could anyone do anything like that to anyone else? And then, like, growing up and being like, how can anyone treat anyone like that? Even now, like, as an adult, when somebody slightly insults somebody else, I'm like, oh, my God. Like, what is wrong with you? Who traumatized you? <laughs> Just like, well, everything I don't know that about anything. Like, anybody being mean to somebody else that doesn't, hasn't done anything to you. Like, I get retaliation. That, to some extent, I can get. But, like, a person that's perfectly nice to you, like, in Walmart or wherever somebody's mean to the cashier. Why? Cause you're mildly inconvenienced. Cause you had a rough day. You're going to take it out on somebody else. Like, okay. Not the best way yeah. to handle it. And it, it's, it, it's hard for me. Cause I've been in that situation, but I've also been in the situation where I've wanted to lash out at people. Sorry, Paul. I know I've done it a few times, <laughs> but I try oh, not, no, I, I try not to, but you know, everybody has those days and we have those rough times and it's all in how we handle it. But that's on us. That's not on anybody else. That's yeah, our choice I, to take it out on other people. Exactly. When I'm having a super frustrating day, I know I'm going to lash out at somebody. I just like. Now she warns sing. people with her little dude that I'll post a picture of. Yeah. <laughs> you walk out of the room, you see a frowny face, just walk away. Be aware I'm about to be a bitch. <laughs> or I can text you. 
I can text you late Saturday night with just a picture of me crying. (laughs) (laughs) You could do that or just post, send me a picture of Twilight. She's in the tub crying. She's on one of those things. All right. (laughs) No, I I just like, I can't get behind it. Like, I think, I think having like, I'm not saying that like coming as somebody who came from trauma again, I hate that the trauma excuse is so readily available. It's like trying to excuse away an act that is so inconceivable to anyone else. Like I can't, I step on my dog's tail or like their toes and I immediately like lose my mind. I am so upset. Like I am trying to, I'm giving them all the blueberries. Like I'm just (laughs) so upset about it. So I can't, in my mind, I can't imagine what that's like. I'm not saying I know that they have a different psyche than me. I know that there's something mentally unstable with them, but get help. Yeah. But it's just like, I, I don't like that excuse of they had a traumatic past. That's not an excuse. No. Being a horrible, murderous human being. You can't excuse it away with trauma. And I'm not, I I will say this. I don't know that he ever used it as an excuse because I never really saw anything that was like a quote from him. And I'm not sure exactly where that information came from. I'm guessing it came from like a pen pal or something or his son. There was also something that said that his son was also in a correctional facility, but I couldn't verify that. So I wasn't going to state it as a fact, but I saw it on a couple of websites, but then I couldn't find his information anywhere. So I, I don't know that that's necessarily true. But it could be, unfortunately, perpetuating. Yeah, it could be. Well, I mean, yeah, it can be a generational thing. But anyways, great job. I have to go watch Casino now. (laughs) Um, Jesus, why? Uh, Take the wheel. What wheel? <laughs> uh, I was channeling uh, um, Kate. Kate uh, you don't know who it is. <laughs> oh God, Carrie. Carrie Underwood. There we go. What was it? I'm channeling her. Take the wheel, Carrie Underwood. Please don't take my wheel. You're gonna let it go. Um, Beyonce, take my wheel, please. Any day of the week. Okay. Whatever wheel you want. Let's go. Uh, you can find Samantha. us on Facebook and Instagram there you go. <laughs> at Tales Podcast. Uh, where can they email us or how can they email us? You can email us at reapergals at reapertales.com. Again, and I want to reiterate this because I have gotten a few emails now on Thursday nights. <laughs> uh, if you email me on Thursday nights, I am probably editing the podcast and I will procrastinate editing it to respond to you. So email us Thursday nights. Don't email us Thursday nights. It doesn't matter because she's not going to look at it until Thursday night. So she's still going to, yeah, just email us whenever she's, she's going to look at it on Thursday as an excuse. Provide her with excuses to wait until midnight to finish what she's got to do. Hey, procrastination <laughs> station over here. That would be known as enabling, guys. Come on. Do All it. right. Please like, rate, review, subscribe. Please review and like leave an actual review too. 
because that helps us out so other people can yeah. find us because if you like us somebody else might do yeah you, they might Crazy or they might not have happened if they don't like us um we're not gonna see their um mean emails or reviews <laughs> <laughs> we're protecting our own mental health yeah <laughs> to you anyway uh love you mean it bye until next time